The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Navigating from A to B and C in Multiple Myeloma, Delivering High-Quality Care with Monoclonal Antibodies, BCMA Antibody Drug Conjugates, and Cellular Therapy. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash VDA860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, and welcome to Navigating from A to B and C in Multiple Myeloma, practical workshops on high-quality care with antibodies and BCMA antibody drug conjugates and cellular therapy. I'm Dr. Sagar Lonial from the Winship Cancer Institute of Emory University in Atlanta, and I'm pleased to welcome my nurse practitioner colleague, Sharice Gleason, also from Winship. Today, we're going to explore the team-based management of multiple myeloma, but focus our attention on how to use novel antibodies and BCMA-directed options that we now have to manage patients in frontline and relapsed refractory disease settings. During this program, we will periodically share several resources that can inform treatment selection and safety management, so please take a moment to download these practical tools before we get started. Let's go ahead and begin. So we know that there have been a number of new treatments approved in the last decade for the management of multiple myeloma, and many of these have included immune-based approaches to the management of patients with newly diagnosed as well as relapsed and refractory multiple myeloma. While daratumumab was initially uh, approved back in 2016 and 2017 uh, as a single agent in the context of refractory myeloma, it rapidly was approved in combinations with carfilzomib as well as pomalidomide, and we subsequently had the approval of the subcutaneous formulation of daratumumab as well. After 2020, we then had approvals of esituximab, either in combination with carfilzomib or in combination with pomalidomide, and subsequent to that, we had the initial approval of belantamab mafodotin, the first BCMA-directed antibody uh, approved in myeloma and this is an antibody drug conjugate. Just a year later, we then had Idacel approved, which is an, uh, a, a CAR T-cell directed at BCMA, and just in the last six months, we've had Siltacel approved, which is a different construct, but also a BCMA-directed CAR T-cell. So as you can see, in just a short five years, we've had a pretty dramatic change in the armamentarium we have to manage patients with myeloma, as well as the combinations that we use both in newly diagnosed, in maintenance, in early relapse, as well as in the management of late relapsed myeloma. And all of these have led to significant improvements in outcome for patients with multiple myeloma across all spectrums of their disease state. Now we know that despite all these new advantages, improvements in progression-free survival, and probably some of the longest overall survival patients with myeloma have experienced, uh, at least in my career, we know that there remain significant unmet medical needs. And the, these are several, particularly older patients with multiple myeloma, uh, patients who present with renal dysfunction, or patients who have high-risk myeloma. And if you look at large retrospective series from community-based approaches, what you'll see is that for patients who are not eligible for transplant, so older and frail, over half only receive one line of therapy, which means they're not getting access to all of the great new things we just described on the previous slide. 
At the same time, if you look at patients who were receiving transplant, and again, that's a relatively small number of the patients that could potentially be eligible for transplant. Only 21% received one line of therapy as well, suggesting that they are not getting to the medians that we know in many of these trials of five, six, or seven prior lines of therapy, remembering that many patients in these trials will have upwards of 13 to 20 prior lines of therapy before enrollment on this refractory myeloma trial. At the same token, probably one of the most rapidly expanding unmet medical needs in myeloma is the triple-class refractory patient population, where patients we know experience poor overall survival and have pretty significant impacts on quality of life. And we will talk about quality of life, particularly as it impacts therapeutic uh, treatment selection. But again, 35% of patients with triple-class refractory uh, uh, myeloma did not receive any additional therapy. That's despite the fact that we have four to five new approved agents in this space. And so I think this really does represent an important educational opportunity to better understand how we can approach treatment in patients who meet these very challenging treatment criteria. So let's start off talking about the role of antibody triplets and quads in the context of newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. We know, for instance, that there are a couple of different scenarios that we have listed here. Uh, and Sharice and I will go back and forth on this in, in just a few minutes when we get through some of the, uh, the, the educational materials. But I think they're illustrative cases for a couple of reasons. The first is the, <clears throat> the case on the left is a 67-year-old gentleman who's got standard risk myeloma, ISS stage 1, uh, clearly has symptomatic myeloma but does not have any high-risk genetics, but does have pretty significant diabetes, neuropathy, and a history of heart failure with a previous history of an MI. And so while this patient, at least on the surface, may be one that we're challenged with in terms of moving forward with a transplant, uh, I think discussions around whether one would consider collection, depending upon response and tolerance of therapy, is certainly an important one. But at least on the surface, this may be somebody we may be less enthusiastic about moving forward with a transplant despite the fact that by age, I think almost all of us would think that this age criteria would in fact be eligible for transplant. On the other hand, the patient on the right, a 74-year-old gentleman with ISS-2 high-risk myeloma, uh, uh, many might take the age alone and say this patient is not transplant eligible. At least at our center and many other major myeloma centers, we would actually not let age be a predictor in this factor, but would look at comorbidities, and this patient has really pretty minimal comorbidities with only well-controlled hypertension, normal renal function, and we know that transplant does seem to offer particularly more benefit uh, in the high-risk group of patients as well. So this might be somebody we would consider to be transplant eligible. And if you thought looking at these two cases on the surface that it would have been the other way around, we did that on purpose uh, to really try and illustrate some of the facts that it's not just about age, it's not just about risk or disease status. There are a number of factors that go into making decisions about transplant eligibility versus ineligibility that really uh, uh, should be done in partnership with a major myeloma center. So let's look at NCCN guidelines for the treatment of newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. As you can see on the left for non-transplant eligible patients, uh, Dara Lendex is a category one. 
Bortezomib Lendex is a category one. Other recommended include Daracyclo Bortezomib Dex. As you know, I'm not a fan of cyclophosphamide-based induction regimens, but there is certainly one that does have randomized phase three data supporting it, which is Dara with VMP. Uh, I think in the U.S., uh, I'm sure we can count on one hand the number of people that have used oral melphalan and prednisone-based approaches. And so I suspect most folks are going to lean towards the left side of the screen in terms of treatment choices and options for patients. If we look uh, at other potential recommended therapies, again, for transplant uh, uh, eligible patients, again, uh, VRD does continue to be the only Category 1 standard that we have at this time point. Other recommended include potentially KRD, DARA with uh, bortezomib lendex, and then uh, Ixalendex as another potential option, uh, uh, although I think this one's probably getting a lot less play currently, uh, given some of the other potential treatment options that we currently have. So let's look at an update of the Maya trial, and this is really adding daratumumab to lendex in non-transplant eligible candidates. And I will tell you, having really looked at this data pretty clearly, my question when I initially saw it was, since they used 65 as the age cutoff, was this curve really improved or enhanced by using a lot of younger patients that in the U.S. we would consider transplant eligible? And what I think is really quite interesting about the Maya trial is that about a third of patients enrolled were over the age of 75. Uh, and so those clearly are patients that are on the border of transplant eligibility. And the absolute magnitude of benefit for DRD over Lendex was the same as it was in the younger patient population, which I think is really important and speaks to the potency of this regimen and that it really could be independent of age. What we know is that the median progression-free survival, at least with the most recent update, is at least five years compared to only 34 months for the Lendex arm. And this actually is better than the Lendex arm and many other control arms and that the overall survival has not been reached uh, and, again, is significantly better than the Lendex arm. And you could argue, why are we looking at overall survival in this? Well, remember I told you over 57% of patients with transplant ineligible patients never get to a second line of therapy. So what you choose for those older, frailer patients may be really important and may ultimately define their survival. That's likely different in a younger patient population where we know that transplant does offer significant PFS benefit, but that because these patients often get three, four, and five lines of therapy, overall survival may not be what we expect to see in the context of newly diagnosed myeloma trials uh, in that setting. What we also know is that similar to younger patients, MRD is an important prognostic factor. And as you can see here, patients who had sustained MRD negativity for greater than 12 months had a much better progression-free survival on the left or overall survival than patients who were MRD negative for less than 12 months or patients who did not achieve MRD negativity at all. Now note, this is 10 to the minus five. Uh, and so this in my mind is a suboptimal endpoint in terms of discontinuation of therapy, but if you're asking about a regulatory endpoint by which we can compare trials, 10 to the minus 5 is certainly reasonable in that context. And if you look at pool data between the Maya and Alcyone trial, remember Alcyone was VMP plus DARA versus VMP, again, you see that prognostic benefit of becoming MRD negative. Uh, this is not really a surprise and does certainly fit uh, with what we know about other treatments in this context as well. 
Now, before we get to the younger patient population, I do want to take a moment to set what I think is the current standard of care for patients who are younger and transplant eligible uh, in terms of outcomes. And this is data from the RVD1000 series that Dr. Joseph, on behalf of our group at Emory, published in JCO a couple of years ago. And what she is showing is that the median PFS for all patients, all 1,000 patients, was 65 months, and that the median overall survival was over 120 months, so greater than 10 years. But more importantly, if you look at the median PFS for standard risk patients, it's almost 80 months. And if you look at the median overall survival in this, it had not been reached with a median follow-up of about eight to nine years. Now, we are updating this data at ASCO, but I put this in here as you're going to look at progression-free and overall survival curves from other large phase two and phase three trials. And remember, this to me now is the benchmark against which those are compared. And so when you look at the updates of this data at ASCO this year, you'll see that, uh, that the data looks, continues to look good, if not, in fact, if not better, uh, with additional longer follow-up. Now, the first trial to discuss is the Griffin trial. The Griffin trial was a randomized trial of RVD-DARA versus RVD. Patients all had a transplant. They then all got consolidation with either RVD-DARA or RVD based on their original assignment. And then patients were received maintenance with either LEN-DARA, if they were on the DARA arm, or lenalidomide alone if they were on the no-DARA arm. So it was consistent across the way in each of the two arms. And what you'll see is that the depth of response clearly is higher in the group that received DARA throughout. 82% greater than CR compared to only 61% in the no-DARA arm. If you look at the end of transplant, 27% were greater than CR compared to only 20%, and clearly the VGPR rates are better are higher in the group that received DARA as part of the induction, consolidation, and maintenance compared to the group that did not. Now, as you continue to build on this, what you'll see is that over time, this difference translated into significant improvements in MRD negativity. Now, again, this is 10 to the minus 5 for both of these thresholds here. But if you look, DARA RVD was almost three times higher in terms of sustained greater than six-month MRD negativity and was almost three times higher in terms of sustained MRD greater than 12 months. And remember, the endpoint of greatest import is not just achieving MRD, but it's sustained MRD negativity. And in my mind, the minimum duration is 12 months. If you're going to make any decisions or comparisons, 12 months is the benchmark of sustained MRD negativity. And as you'll see on the right side, uh, this is now translating at three years into what looks like separation of the curves in terms of PFS between the DARA arm and the non-DARA arm. And just for reference, 81% at three years is almost identical to the PFS that we see in the RVD1000 series. So the control arm is not performing better than we would expect. It's actually performing about as we would expect. And finally, at three years, we're seeing the benefit given the efficacy of standard therapy in these, uh, in these patients with newly diagnosed myeloma. Now, we know that the efficacy of DARA-RVD is consistent across all patient subgroups 
What you'll see here is that in no group uh, is it to the right of the one, meaning that in every single subset, it's all on the left side favoring DARA RVD. You can see that while this is a, an important randomized phase two trial, it is relatively small. And so there is some overlapping of one with the confidence intervals. Uh, and we're hoping that the Perseus trial will give us more power to confirm some of these findings in terms of benefit for the DARA arm across the board. Now, the other trial, and in fact, this was the first trial that came out, was the Cassiopeia trial, looking at DARA VTD, transplant, DARA VTD, and then randomization between uh, DARA versus observation, compared to VTD alone, transplant, VTD, and then DARA versus observation. In my mind, this is a flawed trial, and it's flawed because we know observation alone is not adequate in the post-transplant setting. And so where I really use this trial is trying to make decisions on whether or not there's benefit for adding DARA on the front end. And the way that I would measure that is not a PFS endpoint, it's really depth of response and MRD negativity early on in this randomized trial. Now, if, and, and in fact, that was confirmed with previous analyses. Uh, but what you notice here is that there is some sense when, uh, uh, that it doesn't matter when you get DARA. You can get it up front. You can get it in the maintenance setting. As long as you get it, the benefit is seen here. It's patients who don't get it at all, who get no maintenance, uh, basically who have a median PFS of somewhere around 30 months. And remember, this is almost identical with the IFM study where patients were randomized to no maintenance and the median PFS was less than three years. So I think that this really does, is internally and externally consistent and shows that if you're gonna get DARA, perhaps you don't need it the whole time. You can get it up front or you can get it in maintenance. You don't necessarily need it in both. Now, I do think it's important to look at other anti-CD38 antibodies in this context. This is the German HD7 trial looking at ESA plus VRD versus VRD alone. Remember, in this trial, they looked at the endpoint of uh, response at the end of induction. And as you can see here, 51% were MRD negative compared to only 35% with VRD alone. You might be saying to yourself, why is this number so different than what we've seen in every other trial? In the German trial, they gave six cycles of, in therapy, of, of induction, not four. So they basically gave 50% more therapy to allow you to get to a deeper response. We don't know whether that translates into better PFS. There is a historical presumption that it will, but remember, it can be more challenging to collect stem cells after six cycles of therapy. Uh, so this certainly is something that I think we're looking at that German study to give us additional information on as well. Now the question is, can these novel quads enhance efficacy in the context of high-risk myeloma? And this is data from a trial also in the German group looking at an interim analysis of just 50 patients that looked at ESA plus KRD induction, clearly demonstrated rapid responses, and at two years the PFS was still 75%. And what I think you're seeing is very deep responses, 50% achieving a CR or better. Uh, among those 46 patients. So I think we need longer follow-up and a larger number to understand this, but certainly this suggests that the quads may offer benefit in the context of high-risk myeloma. 
So uh, I think I'm going to bring uh, ask Sharice here to make a few comments as we look at these two cases and go back and forth. Remember, this was the younger patient who we said may or may not be transplant eligible, as well as the older patient who we said likely is transplant eligible. Sharice, you want to give some comments on this on these two cases as well? No, I, yes, I think you made really good points about the reverse of the ages. So for the younger patient who has these comorbidities, you're still going to want to give them a multi-drug induction, and you still want to consider collecting those stem cells because sometimes their status changes and they still might be a transplant candidate down the road. So I think you still want to consider something like lenalidomide, uh, with DARA and DEX, and maybe even still having DARA RVD in there, just giving it at a different frequency to monitor that neuropathy closely. Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things that I think we've uh, that we've tried to do is look at induction therapy as a stress test, um, and uh, and so. You know, if there's somebody we're on the fence about, we might think about a triplet or a quad. And if they sail through and respond nicely, that tells us the likelihood of them being able to get through transplant is better. If they really struggle with that kind of an aggressive approach, that might be a clue that they're not going to get to the transplant setting. Um, and this way, you're not closing doors, you're not limiting opportunities, and certainly the idea of collection and then potentially trying to improve their performance status and moving to transplant at a later date may be another potential option as well. No, I agree, and we've seen that in clinical practice, and you might have another use for those stem cells down the road as well. And, you know, I think you know, we still struggle sometimes with our referrings when we recommend giving DARA up front. Um, you know, Sagar, do you, how do you comment on, you know, when people still want to keep something in their back pocket? You know, that's a, that's a really important question. And, and part of the reason why we have the RVD1000 data set is that 15 years ago when we started using RVD for everybody, when we didn't have all these choices, that was the biggest pushback that we got. Well, what are you going to have when they relapse? And uh, I, my joke is I sort of think about myeloma as the Doritos commercial. Crunch all you want, we'll make more. We've got lots of new drugs in the pipeline. We're always coming up with new things. There's no reason when the risk-benefit ratio clearly benefits outcomes to hold on to better agents just to save them for later. This is not solid tumor oncology where we really need to think about treatments in this way. And in fact, had we done that, we never would have seen the benefit of RVD triplets and would have continued to be using doublets with or without chemotherapy. Um, and so I think uh, that that's one side of the argument, that there isn't a reason to hold on to DARA uh, if it clearly improves depth of response, and that translates into better post-transplant PFS. The second is that if you use DARA as part of your induction, as we do, but don't use it in the consolidation and maintenance phase, you can still use it again in the context of early relapse. So you're not really losing anything. All you're doing is getting an adjunct early on to deepen response and knowing that you can, you can use it again later on. And if the Cassiopeia analysis is correct, if you give it at induction, maybe you don't have to give it in maintenance. Now, we'll see longer follow-up in larger trials to answer that question, but certainly you're not losing anything by saving it, by, by, by using it up front briefly and then saving it for relapse afterwards. No, and in our patient population, we've certainly seen more MRD negativity now in that early post-transplant period since we've been using 
the quad up front using Dara up front. All right. So let's go on maybe talking a little bit about some of the team discussions as uh, as as, Sh- as Sharice and those of you who know us have known, we've always talked about the strength of the team and taking care of patients. Uh, but uh, I'm going to let Sharice talk through these next few slides. Yeah, you know, we really do t- take a team approach to caring for our patients. We have physician, we have advanced practice providers, our nursing team, our uh, clinical pharmacist, and then we have the extension of our team in our infusion centers. So we see our patients at day one of their treatment, and we have follow-ups with them via you know the phone and patient portal, but we really count on the rest of our team as well to assess how things are going. And so we want our patients to communicate with us. You know, we talk to them about, let us know if you're having any changes, any changes from baseline. And you need to be very specific with patients. Not, you know, sometimes it's just that you just don't feel right or you feel different. But so fevers, rashes, we want to know about those things. We have to explain the REMS program, especially with IMIDs and the requirement that they're going to have to do that monthly survey so they know what to expect. Um, We talk about count changes, you know, and how that's transient. Your counts may drop during the cycle and then come back up. Um, We talk about the need for thromboprophylaxis. So you want to assess whether they have a history of having had some kind of clot, so a PE or DVT. But also you want to assess their activity level. If you have somebody who just doesn't move, they've had surgery or they've had a lot of pain from um, bone pain from their diagnosis, you may need something more than aspirin. You may need to consider a low molecular weight heparin or a DOAC for their prophylaxis. We talk about adding you know, the antiviral on every patient and you know, antimicrobials as needed. Um, growth factor support. So there's a lot to talk about with patients ongoing with their treatment. In the induction setting, we do tend to prescribe an anti-emetic, though quite honestly, we don't see a lot of nausea, but we want patients to have something on hand. And keeping in mind that many of our new patients maybe didn't come in with symptoms. I mean, they have myeloma now, but they're not necessarily sick from it. And so we're adding a lot of new medications to their world. And so really getting them through that first cycle or those first two cycles with lots of changes going on and the steroids is, you know, it takes really that team to get them um, through that. You know, the other thing in thinking about specific to the CD38 antibodies includes, you know, we have sub-Q, um, versus IV administration. And at our institution, we almost have ex- exclusively gone to the subcutaneous. But again, there's a lot of teaching involved in this. So first dose, there's, you know, when you're using subcutaneous, there's a far less likelihood of having a, a reaction to it, but they still need to be monitored for that first dose for about three hours. It may vary a little bit um, depending on your institution versus six hours for that IV infusion. And so these patients may have um, a history, you want to talk to them about a history of infection when you're on a CD38 antibody. So we want to monitor those immunoglobulins. Sometimes we have to add in IVIG if needed, if they're having chronic infections. For that first dosing too, you want to make sure that you screen for hepatitis B. And so you're going to send for a B core antibody as well as a surface antigen prior to that initiation of treatment and initiate prophylaxis if needed. 
You also want to send a type and screen prior to that first exposure because this can interfere with blood typing if they need transfusion support down the road. And so with um, daratumumab, you can get um, a false positive indirect Coombs test. And so it's really important to send that blood type before they're exposed um, to that. Thanks, Sharice. I think that was a really good discussion around sort of the team-based approach to management with patients uh, with newly diagnosed myeloma, which oftentimes is such a challenging time for patients and their families because it's a new disease, it's a new diagnosis. They're trying to grapple with a lot of different things. Um, and as good as RVD-1000 makes the outcomes look like, unfortunately, we're still struggling with cases like what you see here, uh, which is the 70-year-old woman with standard risk myeloma who relapses after primary therapy and maintenance, ha had a good uh, remission of about four years, a little bit less than what we would consider the median, uh, and uh, is CD38 naive after one to three prior lines of therapy. So this is another area where there's a lot of what I would call therapeutic ambiguity, uh, because there are lots of treatment options, lots of different choices, loads and loads of randomized phase three trials, and uh, what I think what often patients and clinicians are struggling with is what do I choose amongst this large menu of options? So let's talk about antibodies in early relapse into one to three prior lines of therapy. So if you look at NCCN guidelines for early relapse, you'll see uh, KRD, for instance. You'll see DARA plus VD, KD, PD, or RD. You'll see ESA <coughs> plus POMDEX or KD. You'll see Ixalendax, you'll see Pombortezomibdex, and then some other ones, particularly the liposomal doxorubicin that I don't think any of us are using anymore. Um, and I think most of us would use Selenexer-based combinations, not in first relapse, but likely in later relapse. And so I think when you look at this, this long laundry list of potential options, the first thing to do is say that a patient progressing on LEN maintenance, any LEN-based combination is probably out. So KRD is out. DARA plus Lendex is out. Uh, IRD is out. Um, and unfortunately, while I was the first author and led this trial, ELO Lendex is probably out as well. So let's look at other potential options and other ways to think about combining DARA with either a PI or an IMID and what the data is in that context. So again, we know that using either DARA or ESA in this first relapse setting is the preferred backbone, if you will. And the question is, what are you gonna to add to it? And these are sort of the choices, as you can see up here. If you look at the CANDOR data, which is DARA plus KD, median PFS was about 28 months versus 15 months with a hazard ratio of 0.59. If you look at DARA plus POMDEX, what you'll see is median PFS of 12 months versus 6.9 months. Now, I will point out that the difference between Apollo and Candor is a line of therapy. Candor typically was used in the second, first and second relapse, whereas Apollo was used in second and third relapse based on the indication for pomalidomide. So that might explain some of the difference here. And in fact, in an analysis that Dr. Joseph from our group presented at ASH this year, uh, what she showed was that for patients who are more than 30 months after diagnosis with myeloma in first relapse, that the benefit of DARA-POMDEX was actually significantly longer than 12 months. It was closer to 35 uh, months, I think, in that analysis. So, so clearly where you are in the, in the treatment spectrum does, in fact, make a difference. Now, at the same time, you have data on esetuximab, 
plus Palm decks. Again, looks very similar to what I showed you for Apollo before. And if you look at Ikema, which is ESA plus Cardex, again, similar. Uh, uh, the follow-up was a little shorter uh, on ESA KD um, uh, in terms of uh, reaching the median. But again, similar hazard ratios suggesting that this is a, of equal benefit to what we've seen with daratumumab in the same kind, kinds of combinations as well. So uh, I think what we do know is that longer follow-up from Icaria demonstrates that the benefit continues to be there. Uh, and again, with even longer follow-up, what we're seeing is that the, uh, uh, that the PFS uh, <clears throat> does continue to improve and that the median overall survival is also favoring the group that received esetuximab uh, from the Ikema study here as well. So again, both of these are demonstrating significant benefit. And the real question is, what are you comfortable with? What do you want to use? What is your, what, what, what have you used more frequently that allows you to make this decision in a way that does not necessarily challenge or is different for each patient that you see? I think to a certain extent, you do want to come up with a standard go-to regimen in the management of relapsed refractory myeloma. So here we come back to the case, 70-year-old female, ISS2 relapsing after about four years, progressing on lenalidomide. <clears throat> Sharice, you want to talk to through how we might think about managing a patient like this? Yeah, this, you know, at our institution, we're going to go to a line of daratumumab, pomalidomide, and dex. But I think it's worth mentioning this is that time point where you do restage that patient. Um, it, it is a time to do imaging. For us, it's a PET-CT. And then look at the bone marrow again to see if there's anything about the disease that's the biology of the disease that's changed. So do they have a high-risk feature that maybe they didn't have before? So it's worth taking a look at this point. Yeah, and, and certainly um, given that the PFS was longer than four years, um, uh, I think uh, uh, POM plus DARA would be an option that we would strongly consider the alternative would be to use carfilzomib as a partner, um, recognizing that in both the Candor and the Esituximab trials, when they partnered with carfilzomib, they gave carfilzomib at 56 milligrams per meter squared twice a week. Uh, and so many folks are using 56 once a week. The efficacy and the PFS may not be the same. Uh, and so I just want to put that note of caution out there. Clearly, it's a very effective regimen. Uh, but I think if you're going to expect and extrapolate from phase three trials, you need to know what you're doing differently, perhaps, than what was done in that trial in case the clinical experience doesn't necessarily map up with what was seen in that randomized phase three trial. So I, I agree. This is not somebody I would use with any of the LEN-based combinations. Uh, CD38 does become the sort of backbone, if you will, and we think about, <clears throat> in, at least in this patient, uh, a CD38 plus POM might be the way that we would, we would tend to go in this clinical situation. All right, so Sharice, uh, you want to talk a little bit about sort of some of these things that decide when we think about initiating therapy. Yeah, no, I think it's important in, in thinking about this last patient as well. You know, the other things that you take into consideration are, are what is the, how quickly they relapse. That patient was four years out on maintenance, but what is the response to their prior therapy and what are those other comorbidities they might have from the prior therapy? Do they have neuropathy that they didn't have before? So we have to take all these things into consideration. How aggressive is their relapse? Is this somebody that's had a slow biochemical 
that we've been watching? Or is it somebody now who's going into renal failure, has hypercalcemia, new bone disease? Are we having count issues? Or has something about the disease changed that now they have a 17P deletion where they didn't before? So you need to think about all these things as well as, again, what's their performance status? Um, Do they have any new comorbidities? And it's a conversation with your patient as well. In that early relapse setting, you know, we have more options than in that relapsed, relapsed refractory setting. So the things that you always want to consider are there other comorbidities, their frailty, and their convenience. Not everybody lives close to one of our infusion centers. And so some of our patients go a distant, drive a distance, or can we partner with referring physicians on their treatment? And then again, you want to look at those risk factors to their disease. There's something now that's more aggressive that wasn't there before. So when you're thinking about dosing considerations, so we talked for this patient about going to something like daratumumab. If you look at the subcutaneous versus IV, and, and remember you do you are able to download um, these dosing uh, recommendations for your use, but subcutaneous, it's an 1800 milligram um, flat dose versus IV 16 milligram per kilogram. Um, for first dose, sometimes with IV, you have to split the dose where you don't have to do that with subcutaneous. The administration is weekly, weeks one through eight, and then at week nine, you go to bi-weekly from week nine to week 24, and then it goes to monthly at that point. So it's really convenient for patients, and um, quite honestly, patients are very sad when they come off of a daratumumab regimen. Giving the subcutaneous, it's three to five minutes after that first dose, versus an IV infusion of 1.5 hours to eight hours, depending on um, where you're receiving it. And so, um, you know, it's very well tolerated. For patients receiving isotuximab, um, this is 10 milligrams per kilogram. The infusion rate is about 3.5 hours, and they are looking at subcutaneous versions on clinical trials. The other thing to keep in mind is that hypersensitivity reaction. We talked about this a little bit. You know, there's more of a chance with that dose one, and it goes significantly down after that. So the pre-medications, if you look, versus IV, sub-Q, and izatuximab are actually very um, similar between the two. Um, with izatuximab, you do add an H2 antagonist, um, but you know, and then with dose one of daratumumab, we also add Montelukast, but these pre-meds really drop off um, after the first one to two doses. And, you know, with the subcutaneous daratumumab, we don't continue the um, giving the diphenhydramine just because it can cause a patient drowsiness and they're already done and out of the, the clinic at that point. So early on, and then you can taper off. All right. So uh, again, another challenging situation that I think we've given some good guidance on in terms of how to manage those patients in early relapse. Unfortunately, um, the the number of patients who get through that early relapse situation and now become uh, triple class refractory is increasing and to me represents probably one of the biggest unmet medical needs in the context of myeloma. So let's go back to a case, a 74-year-old woman with uh, ISS-2 relapsing after multiple prior uh, uh, regimens, uh, having seen PIs, IMIDs, and anti-CD38 antibodies. You can see uh, the treatment, the lines of treatment here. 
And so I think one of the questions and challenges that we all struggle with is how aggressive can we be given the fact that this patient has seen a lot of treatment and likely between treatment as uh, comorbidities as well as disease-related issues may have de declining uh, functional status, uh, how do we make decisions about how aggressive to be? Uh, and on the other hand, there are patients we know that do retain a good performance status, and how do we let that guide our treatment approach, uh, particularly in the refractory myeloma setting? And so I think those are all factors that we think about uh, when we begin to make decisions like this. When we look at patients like this, we do know that in the mammoth study, for instance, the outcomes in patients who are refractory to anti-CD38 monoclonal antibodies clearly is uh, inferior, and as you can see, triple and quad refractory, uh, 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 penta refractory, all have median overall survivals of less than a year. Uh, and these certainly do represent really challenging patients, A, because of performance status, and B, because of uh, counts. Oftentimes, they've had so much treatment that their platelet count is low or their white count is low, making it challenging to maintain them on therapy or even get them on potential clinical trials. So what we do know about uh, uh, approved agents in this context is the NCCN guidelines for late relapse, meaning greater than three prior therapies. And what you'll see is uh, Belomaf or Belantamab mafodotin, which is a BCMA-directed antibody drug conjugate, Idacel and Siltacel, both of which are CAR T-cells, and then Selenex or Dexamethasone based on uh, studies uh, like the STORM study in this same context of therapy. So let's begin with belantamab mafodotin or Belomaf, which is the first in-class BCMA-directed uh, uh, treatment approved by the FDA. Uh, I actually uh, uh, had the uh, fortune, good fortune to lead this randomized phase two trial, which again uses an antibody drug conjugate targeting BCMA. But while it is an antibody drug conjugate, it is actually able to generate ADCC and ADC as well. Uh, and for this reason, uh, using partners that enhance immune function, T-cell function, and NK-cell function clearly make Belomaf better. And I'm going to show you some clinical data to speak to that. It is also an off-the-shelf uh, potential treatment option. Uh, there is a new adverse event that most of us in myeloma are not used to dealing with in terms of uh, uh, side effects of therapy, and that is ocular toxicity or keratopathy. And Sharice will go over that in just a few moments when we get through uh, some of the clinical data. So let's talk about the DREAM2 study, which is the trial that led to the FDA approval of Belomaf in the context of triple-class refractory myeloma. Overall response rate of 31%, with some patients achieving CR and VGPR. Uh, the median duration of response was 11 months in the 2.5 mg per kg dose. That is the dose that is FDA approved. And there were patients who did, who did develop uh, a keratopathy that required dose holds and dose modifications uh, as a part of that treatment in that trial. What we also know is that partnering Belomaf with other drugs, particularly drugs that activate immune function, can be very effective. This is the Algonquin trial presented by Suzanne Trudell at ASH uh, that combined pomalidomide with belantamab mafodotin or Belomaf. And what you're seeing is very high overall response rates and very high VGPR or better rates. And so this, to me, again, speaks to the potency of an IMID with an immune therapy. Uh, <clears throat> we see that with uh, DARA. We see that with ELO. 
We may see that with the CAR T-cell products, but currently uh, 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 we certainly see that with Bellamaf as well. What about Idacel? Idacel is the first CAR T-cell approved in the context of myeloma targeting BCMA. I won't go through the, the, the genetics of the construct or the specifics related to how these cells are made. Just recognize that there was a phase two study, the KARMA trial, that evaluated a large cohort of patients treated uh, with either 450 or 300 milligrams uh, uh, or 300 times 10 to the sixth uh, CAR T-cell infusion. And what we saw was overall response rates of 73%, uh, CR rates of about 33%. Responses were very quick. And I remember the first patient we put on this trial had multiple large plasma cytomas that melted away in the first 24 hours after infusion of the CAR T-cell. Really quite impressive data uh, in terms of speed of response. And what you see is that the PFS in some ways varies based on the target dose as well as the depth of response. Uh, and so uh, while the median PFS was around 11 months, uh, uh, certainly patients who have deeper responses are getting longer durations of responses with Idacel. And this data has been presented and published in a number of different formats. The other CAR T-cell just recently approved was Siltacel. Uh, this is a, uh, also a BCMA-directed um, uh, CAR T-cell. This is similar to the Legend product that we saw from China almost six or seven years ago now. It does bind two different domains on BCMA, so may have different affinity than what we've seen with other CAR T-cells targeting BCMA. What we know about the CARTITUDE-1 study, based on an updated ASH, is that it had a 97% overall response rate, Median follow-up at two years, about 83% achieved CR, and that that response occurred relatively quickly as well. But even more impressively, two-year PFS was about 71% for patients who achieved CR, and two-year PFS for all patients was about 60%, and two-year overall survival for all patients in aggregate was 74%. So again, if you go back to the Mammoth study where the median overall survival was nine months, we've now gone significantly longer with a cell therapy-based approach like Cartitude uh, uh, based on the data from the Cartitude 1 trial. So let's get back to this case. This 74-year-old woman, uh, depending upon functional status, performance status, and again, her personal preference, uh, we would go through either off-the-shelf approaches like belantamab mafodotin or potentially pursuing a, a CAR T-cell uh, if availability was not an option and they were willing to potentially accept some of the toxicities that could occur uh, with, a, with a CAR T-cell. Sharish, you want to talk a little bit about how we might approach a patient like this in our clinic? Yeah, it really, it goes back to that, how rapidly are they progressing? And it's, it's all about um, discussing these options and do we have a CAR T-slot available? I think patients sometimes think, you know, we can just go and it, we're going to talk about that a little bit, but it's, there's such a process around it to have that patient ready to go. So, you know, you have something like Belantamab that would be available to the patient. We're going to look at, do we have something CAR-T? And, you know, we always consider a clinical trial as well. So when we talk about the ocular toxicities with Belantamab, um, just to talk a little bit about the dosing. So we know that on the clinical trials, um, patients can develop this keratopathy. 
And patients describe it as, you know, I have really dry eyes, I have blurry vision. And so we have to have a baseline vision screen prior to initiating belantamab. And the dosing is every three weeks. It's IV um, with no pre-meds. Um, but the patient has to then again have an eye exam prior to each dosing. And so depending on the grade of changes, um, they may or may not be able to get treated. And so sometimes, you know, patients are a little leery about that. But what we found is if you hold the drug, typically these issues, the eye issues do resolve. And so then they are able to get the next dose. So it's not unusual for some of these patients to actually get dosed about every six weeks instead of every three weeks. And it, you know, usually, um, like I said, it resolves. We do recommend that they use eye drops in about four times a day. If your patient can't afford the eye drops, then they are provided by the company. So that's something that we can do or our nursing team um, can do to get this for the patient. What we did find that on clinical trials, there was no benefit with steroid drops. So there's no use um, in using that. We're very fortunate that we pair with our eye care specialists, but if there's not that available out in the community, there is a resource to go and look for a pre-identified eye care specialist um, to help with this. So looking again, just to kind of summarize this, you need to have the ophthalmology exams to monitor for the events, uh, monitor for blurred vision, dry eyes, uh, photophobia. Most of this occurs typically in the first two cycles and it is reversible with holding and then dose reductions. And after a dose, redu dose reduction and resumption of therapy, you're gonna have that continued assessment for not only response, but also ocular issues. And infusion reactions, that's just not been an issue with this. So you really do not have to pre-med. So this is an option, a treatment option for a patient who maybe just wants a treatment that does not involve steroids as well. So something else to keep in mind. So then when we start to think about CAR-T therapy, I think we've said, you know, it's as it's FDA approved, it's kind of that one and done, but it's quite the process to get. And the dosing is different for eye to cell versus cell to cell. Um, but you first have to, you know, have a slot for this patient. So the patient needs referred in to a center that participates on CAR-T therapy. And so we typically recommend that you refer your patient in sooner than later. Um, they might be eligible for another clinical trial, but you want to get them into our patient population. So if we do have a slot come up, this is an option for them. Um, giving the, um, the product back, you want to make sure not to use a leukodepleting filter. Um, you want to avoid prophylaxis with dexamethasone or other systemic corticosteroids. Um, you want to monitor for those other adverse events. You know, we think of infection, and we'll talk about that um, as well. But there are some other um, toxicities that you just, these patients need close monitoring, and they can last for a while. We keep these patients near our center for at least 30 days before we would send them back to their referring. And just know that some of these toxicities can last way past that time. And so that we have to send these cells off to be re-engineered. So you have to have a phoresis slot. You have to talk about bridging for these patients. If they're going to get bridging therapy, they need to be off of therapy two weeks before you collect their product and then two weeks before they get it back. Um, they get in a lymphodepleting chemotherapy, 
regimen, um, cyclophosphamide and fludarabine before they get those cells back. And that's really to make room for these re-engineered T cells. Um, you get their pre-medications. This process happens in the hospital. So it's really a team approach between the clinic coordination, patient going in the hospital, and then coming back out into the clinic. And while they're in the hospital, you're gonna monitor for cytokine release syndrome and neurotoxicities. Um, knowing you have to have, be at a center, you have to have tezeluzumab available and a REMS program for your center. Sagar, I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that piece of it. No, I think uh, certainly the, the, um, the, the challenges really are about um, adverse events. Um, and so um, uh, CRS and ICANS, which is uh, uh, neurologic toxicity, uh, does occur in CAR T-cell products. Uh, and, uh, what the good news is, in my mind, is that the incidence and severity is probably one grade lower in myeloma than it is in ALL and diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So the CD19 products, I think the CRS and ICANN's concerns are much greater than they are in myeloma. You can see here between Siltacel and Idacel, it occurs in almost all patients uh, but most of it is, is not necessarily grade three, grade four. You can see only 5% grade three, grade four. Uh, the onset is different based on the product. And that is something that you need to know. Uh, and this is very nicely, uh, clearly different between the two. Idacel tends to occur quickly, whereas Siltacel tends to occur about a week later. Uh, even if you look at ICANS, uh, grade three, grade four, 2% and 3% for those two. Uh, so I think, uh, that in many ways, this is, uh, it's a new adverse event for those of us who only focus on myeloma, but those who see patients with hemolignancies are used to experiencing CRS, both with bispecifics like blinitumumab, as well as CD19-directed CARs, and recognize that um, these are treatment options that uh, I think uh, typically occur in the hospital. Uh, you need to have the infrastructure prepared to manage CRS and ICANS in that clinical situation, uh, and that in most cases, it can be managed relatively easily and relatively safely. So I think when we consider principles for CAR-T referral, uh, it's not the same as criteria for an autotransplant. I think the adverse events associated with a CAR are much lower. I think our oldest patient is 80, I think, that we've treated with a CAR-T cell. Um, and uh, that patient did fine. Uh, and so it's not the same functional issue that you see with an autotransplant. Uh, but at the same time, referral early is the answer. So when patients are in second relapse, that's probably not a bad time for them to see somebody about getting on a CAR-T list and making sure we understand uh, logistics and el eligibility. Because uh, I can't tell you how many patients I've seen that come to me as a new consult and say, I'm here to get my CAR-T cell. And uh, I think our response is, well, there's a process here, uh, uh, and it's going to take us time to get that done. It doesn't just happen overnight. Uh, and, and so I think that early referral really is, um, is a key part of the success of getting patients through this process in a timely fashion. So as we wrap up talking about BCMA-directed therapy, it's important to really talk about BCMA by specifics, because I think this is another off-the-shelf approach uh, it's very clinically active and an area that I think we're very excited about. And uh, hopefully within the next year, we'll have access to this uh, through FDA approvals as well. 
So I think uh, bispecifics, again, work through a mechanism that is not dissimilar from a CAR-T, except it doesn't require the extracellular engineering of the cells in order to be functional. What a bispecific really does is on one side target BCMA and on the other side target CD3 so that you bring a T cell in close proximity to a myeloma cell and that ultimately responds in, uh, results in myeloma cell death. And so I think this is certainly a really exciting and important new area for us in multiple myeloma, an area that's now I think exploding in a number of different other cancer targets as well. So probably the furthest along of the bispecifics is teclistimab which again is an off-the-shelf T-cell redirecting bispecific antibody. You may hear the word bite, you may hear the word bispecifics, uh, but uh, the, the way that often many of us refer to them is T-cell engagers or TCEs, uh, and uh, that's uh, basically what teclistimab is. And as I mentioned, you can see here on one side it binds BCMA, on the other side it binds CD3, and that brings a T-cell in close proximity to a myeloma cell, activating it to ultimately then kill that myeloma cell. When we look at data from teclistimab, uh, as presented by Dr. Moreau at ASH this year, you can see the overall response rate was 62% in patients with triple-class refractory myeloma. About a quarter of those patients achieved MRD negativity at 10 to the minus 5, uh, and about 15% at 10 to the minus 6. So this is pretty revolutionary to think about MRD negativity in the context of uh, of a triple-class refractory patient population with efficacy data that, uh, while may not look quite as good as a CAR T-cell, uh, certainly the MRD data looks very, very encouraging as well. Uh, the, uh, what we also know about median duration of response is it's not been reached, but about at six months and nine months, roughly 85% of patients uh, remain without progression. Uh, and the PFS at six months looks like it's about 64% median overall survival has not yet been reached. So clearly highly effective with a high overall response rate and very deep responses. I think understanding PFS is gonna be really important and again has the added benefit of being off the shelf. Now when you think about um, uh, uh, adverse events, also CRS and neurotoxicity were the two main toxicities that we see because again, this works through activating T cells. But just as I mentioned that CAR T cells are one grade lower than what we see with CD19-directed CAR T cells, when you think about CRS and ICANs with bispecifics, they are also one grade lower than uh, what you see with CAR T cells targeting BCMA-directed uh, targets as well. So ICANs were pretty rare. Most of them were grade one, grade two. CRS events were mostly grade one, grade two. There was one patient in the phase two experience that had a grade three CRS that did in fact fully resolve. And we are now looking at stepped up dosing uh, to try and mitigate CRS and ICANs uh, so that you're not giving the big bolus dose all at one time, but that you're giving slow lead up doses that ultimately may make this more manageable for patients as an outpatient, which I think ultimately would be a really exciting goal uh, for all of us. Now, if you look at the other uh, 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 bispecific that's out there targeting BCMA, and there are six of them, remember, uh, this one is L-renatumab, uh, also known as the Magnetism MM1 study, which is uh, another BCMA-directed uh, T-cell engager with dose escalation, same functional way that it works, uh, similar to what I showed you for teclistimab before. If you look at 55 patients treated with weekly subcutaneous L-renatumab, 
Again, over half the patients were uh, triple class refractory with about a quarter of the patients who had seen prior BCMA-directed therapy. Uh, the overall response rate was about 70 percent. Uh, and uh, more exciting and, and I think uh, uh, um, uh, uh, encouraging is the fact that with step-up dosing and pre-medication, you actually lower CRS significant grade uh, issues. So again, most CRS was grade one or grade two. No events were greater than grade two, which means that they could be managed pretty easily with corticosteroids and or tocilizumab and still allow patients to stay on therapy overall. I think that this is really uh, encouraging and it has led to the Magnetism MM3 trial, which was a randomized trial uh, looking again at uh, patients in different combinations, refractory to a PI, an IMID, or an anti-CD38 antibody. Uh, there are two different cohorts of patients, no prior BCMA and prior BCMA, and they're all getting L-renatumab as part of their monotherapy uh, in that context as well. So I think it is important when we think about BCMA-directed therapy, whether it's a bispecific, a CAR T-cell, or an antibody drug conjugate, that we make sure we're talking about appropriate infection prevention. Shreese, do you want to mention a little bit about some of the way that we approach this for CAR T-cell patients in general and in the post-COVID area, how we manage that as well? Yeah, so for these you know, post-CAR T patients, they definitely have a compromised immune system. You know, you've re-engineered and used those T cells to target the myeloma cells. So these patients are very hypogammaglobulinemic. And so we do start these patients on monthly IVIG just to help boost their immune system and watch those counts and monitor for infection. And that that's probably one of the the biggest things to monitor for and know that this is going to be a long-term issue. Um, the other thing with COVID, we want to get these patients on prophylaxis with Evashield. And so all of these patients um, and our bispecific patients, we want to give Evashield just to give them that extra protection um, with COVID. And, you know, as we continue to learn more about that, um, you know, we're fortunate that we've had access it, to Evashield and it's, that's gotten a little bit better. But I think considering those long-term infection issues, you know, the other thing just to keep in mind um, with the CAR-T patients too, they can have some neurotoxicities for up to eight weeks after receiving their cells. So something to keep in mind, this is why they don't drive for eight weeks, you know, so you have to really have that care partner um, involved as well and that support in these patients. Yeah, you know, I think it's, uh, we, we actually published a paper recently from our group uh, in JCO on vaccine responses in myeloma patients. And the two predictors of not responding to the vaccine were CD38 antibodies and BCMA-directed therapy. Um, and so it's not uncommon for Sharice and I to hear from a patient, well, I've had three shots and a booster. Uh, I'm fine. And we, we have to remind them that basically they're not gonna respond if they're on any of these kinds of therapies. And so prevention, prophylaxis, and telling them to behave as if they're not vaccinated uh, probably is an important message for these patients uh, to minimize the risk of uh, significant COVID infections in this setting. No, that's right. And we do continue to have those conversations and patients will ask us to check their antibodies. And frequently you see none, but you don't even know what to do with the data if you do see some antibodies. So we do just reinforce that they need to behave like they've not had any prophylaxis for COVID. 
Yeah, no, I, I think the antibody testing is an important uh, uh, point to bring up, Cherise. And in our paper, what we show is that myeloma patients actually create uh, antibodies that are non-neutralizing. So you can have antibodies that give you a sense of protection, but they don't bind COVID and so they don't protect you. Uh, and so I tell, as you mentioned, we, we say over and over again, even if you've got antibodies, don't presume that they're gonna work uh, uh, to prevent you from COVID in this situation. So lots to think about. And, and, and I think as we wrap this up again, uh, I think this concludes our exploration of our team-based approach in an area where antibodies and BCMA-directed therapies, cell therapies, bispecifics, are really playing a central role in patient care and management. We are pushing the boundaries of depth of response in every phase of treatment. We're pushing the boundaries of progression-free and overall survival for patients. And these are all good things, and these are opportunities that everybody wants to be able to provide. And so thank you, Cherise, for, for joining today as we showed sort of how we take care of patients in our, in our clinics uh, and in our situation. I hope you found this activity informative and useful in your practice, and thank you for your attention. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash VDA 860. This activity is supported by educational grants from Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Pfizer, and Sanofi Genzyme.